If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grunton Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. These trains could be ambushed on both sides of the border and sometimes these trains would enter the stations of each side and there would be no one alive. The only person alive would be the train driver. That was Kavita Puri describing one of the most haunting images of the partition of India. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're continuing our theme from Thursday's episode, of the partition of India, as we approach the 70th anniversary. And as I explained last week, it's a subject that's being extensively covered on BBC TV and radio, including the new BBC Radio 4 series, Partition Voices. Beginning today, the 31st of July, this three-part series is based on interviews with British Asians and colonial British, who lived through these tumultuous events. Here is a clip. My childhood was really wonderful. We had open streets to run around in, friends gathering under the trees. But there wasn't a tree around the village that I hadn't climbed. Gerbashk now lives in London. He was born in a small farming community. Over the past year, we've been speaking to people across the United Kingdom who lived in British India. Like Gerbashk, nearly all wanted to remember the peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs over the many decades before British India was divided. We didn't really think about religion very much. We knew there were different names. And the Muslims were mainly farmers. They are smaller chunks of land. Would you celebrate festivals together? Yes. At the Eid, they send sweets to our house and at Diwali, we'll send sweets to their house and was accepted. It was a fairly close sort of relationship all the time. So close that a Muslim neighbour raised Sikh cousins of Gerbashk as her own after a tragedy struck the family. Their mother had died when they were little children. And one of her best friends, a Muslim lady, she actually brought them up. They used to suckle because she had children of the same age. 
and she looked after those children just like her own. She was just a wonderful, wonderful lady. And she used to bathe me long before the partition, when I was six or seven. And her children, her sons, would take me to the farm, carry me sometimes. We never thought ever that one day we'll have to separate and for good. We used to live like brothers. There was no discrimination because language was same, culture was same, food was same, clothing was same, everything was same. Raj Daswani from Karachi even fell in love with his neighbour's daughter. He was a Hindu, she was a Muslim. The contact with the Yasmin that haunts me, we were 12, 13 years old, living in the same building. We used to meet at the terrace, light a candle and just talk and see each other, holding hand with each other. I used to tell her, like, uh, putting my hands like this against the moon, that one day I'll give you this moon. We used to talk about uh, our future, how it will be, whether we will be able to live together, get married to each other, because the difference of religion, the Muslims and Hindus. And then we used to say we'll face it. We used to talk about it and we used to be very hopeful that since we are in real law, we'll definitely come through that and cross that bridge of religious differences. There was one song, always reminds me of Yasmin. Nale Alakaje Berotar Minjo means we used to pray to the God to keep our life together throughout our life. Nale Alakaje Berotar Minjo When I listened that song, I remember that God didn't give us the blessings. The presenter of Partition Voices is Kavita Puri, and I caught up with her a little while back to find out more. For our listeners who may not know a great deal about the story of Partition, could you just give us a brief idea of why it was that Britain decided to leave India and then divide it into two separate countries? Well, that's a very complex question. There had been um, calls for independence in the 1940s. And at that point, there wasn't a question of a divided India. But it became politicised um, as the 40s went on into two distinct calls. Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the leader of the Congress Party, wanted a united India after Britain left. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who led the Muslim League, wanted to protect the 100 million Muslims who lived in British India. That was a quarter of the population, and he wanted safeguards. And eventually that um, came to be articulated in a call for a separate homeland, which would then become Pakistan. And after the Second World War, um, 
Britain's exchequers were expleted. They were, they, you know, the country was exhausted. And Clement Attlee and his government decided in late 1946 to withdraw from India. And um, in a way, it was marking the, the beginning of the end of the British Empire. But they decided, Clement Attlee decided, that it wouldn't be until June 1948 that the British would leave. British India's last viceroy, Lord Mountbatten, then arrived a couple of months later. And the sectarian violence um, had got a lot worse in India. And I think the feeling was that, that the Brits needed to get out quickly, that the situation was getting out of control. And Lord Mountbatten made the decision that India should be partitioned in about 11 weeks. And, and he and Jinnah and... Nehru and Tara Singh for the Sikhs made this big announcement on June the 3rd to say that the country would be partitioned. And that was a very, very momentous decision. And then he he added this astonishing announcement. And I think he surprised everyone to say that India would be partitioned very quickly. And it was decided that the very populous Muslim majority provinces of Punjab and Bengal would be divided by a British lawyer, Lord Cyril Radcliffe. In, in, you know, very quick time. And that's how August the 15th, 1947 came about, the day that Pakistan and India got their independence. But before the, the partition process began, and you, you mentioned sectarian violence, but how had the different religious groups got on with each other? Again, this is something you spoke to your interviewees about in the years before partition. It's really interesting because so many of the interviews that we conducted and we we went across the country, and I, I really mean that. We were in Scotland and Wales, and um, and we spoke to a large number of people from all around uh, British India, and they wanted to tell us how groups that had coexisted together for centuries, really, uh, particularly in the Punjab and Bengal, got along very well. And there were some very moving stories um, that we heard of how they didn't really distinguish. They knew that people had different names. They knew that people ate different food, that even people, you know, people did celebrate their religious festivals, but everybody was included. And often your ties to your land were more important than, than religion. And, you know, we heard beautiful stories of how one man told us of how his Sikh cousins, their mother had died and their close Muslim friend suckled them. And, you know, years later, they would have to leave each other. And the parting of their friends, of people that they had grown up with, is still something 70 years on that people remember. And it is still very raw. Um, but it is still heartening that after everything that happened, and you hear many awful stories when people recount their time during partition, that this is what people want to tell you, that it wasn't always like this. So that's interesting then, because Pakistan and India were created out of the partition, but why was it then that the huge population transfers ended up happening, that Hindus and Sikhs would then move from Pakistan to India, lots of Muslims would move to Pakistan? If these people had got on so well, why did they end up dividing in this manner? Well, I think the sources of how people had gone from living happily to, you know, almost ethnic cleansing is a, is a, is a real subject of historical debate. Um, many argue that Britain's divide and rule policy over the years had stoked up religious tensions. But I think what happened was it was a combination of armed gangs and militias whipping up sentiment. But I think things 
things took on a life of their own when when trains started coming in full of the corpses of one religious group. People just reacted and took it out on those closest to them. And it was, you know, even today, people can't understand how things had got as bad as they did. But what did become apparent very, very quickly, particularly in the Punjab, which is almost segregated today, is that once the borders had been announced, that people couldn't stay if they were a religious minority. It was too difficult. And people tried. They really did try and stay. They loved the land of their birth so much. But as the riots came closer to their villages, it just became untenable. And so in the end, they had to leave. And what's really interesting is, and people, you know, they all said this, that that sometimes when people left, they didn't take much with them. Sometimes they barely took anything because they literally thought they would cross the border for a couple of weeks. You know, the craziness following independence would die down and then they could go back. And it didn't dawn on them until some time later that they were never coming back. And a lot of people have never been back in 70 years. Some of the people you spoke to made these journeys across the borders what was it like to make these kind of trips? Because I gather they often maybe wouldn't have had the kind of transport we have nowadays. It might have been quite a gruelling trip to make. Well, it wasn't only gruelling, it was dangerous. So some people travelled by foot and they would try and go in large groups for safety. So they would go in these kind of long lines of people known as kafilas and they would take bullock carts and, you know, put what, what they could on them. And sometimes these columns of people were miles long. But these lines were being attacked and um, people were being killed. And so even though you're traveling with large numbers of people, it was dangerous. And for the women in particular who may have had children and so were lagging behind, it was a real risk for them that they could be uh, abducted and taken away. So it was it was dangerous. But I suppose the kind of totemic image of partition are the, the trains and trains was one way that you could cross the border. But it was perilous. And these trains could be ambushed on both sides of the border. And sometimes these trains would enter the stations of, you know, each side and there would be no one alive. The only person alive would be the train driver who they would spare, so they would take the train into the station. And we spoke to a number of people who who saw these trains full of corpses, but you had no option. You know, if you stayed, you could be attacked by the other religious group. Uh, and if you fled, that was dangerous too. Did any of the people you speak to actually either take part in any of these violent acts or were any of them victims of them? And did that give you an added perspective? Yes, we did speak to people who took part in the attacks. Obviously, it's 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 tricky. They they might say, I saw, you know, I was part of a raid. I didn't kill people, but I saw others who did. We spoke to one man who, you know, threw 17 nail and petrol bombs at Muslims who were attacking his Hindu neighbourhood. Again, he couched it as a defensive action. Very interestingly, we were going to speak to somebody today and do an interview with them who saw her relatives kill people. And she said, actually, I don't want to do it. It's too much. And I think part of the reason that people haven't talked about partition in 70 years is because it's not clear cut. It's not like the Holocaust, for example, where there are very, you know, it's very clear who were on the good and, and bad side. With partition, 
everybody was culpable, every side was. And I think that's very difficult to talk about now, 70 years on. But yes, we did We did speak to, to people and we spoke to many, many victims. People were quite forthcoming on that. But then again, even, even amidst those stories, people would tell you of how people of the other religion would do extraordinary things to save them, especially people who had known them for years. And so it's not completely bleak, you know, the, the friendships and the relationships that had built before partition, some of that did survive, which is heartening. And another group that I believe you talk about within your series is the colonial British, who often maybe don't feature so much in the stories of partition. What did it mean for them? And did they feel able to stay in India and Pakistan after independence? I think the colonial British have been overlooked and of course they didn't experience what a lot of the migrating Indians and Pakistanis did, but they, you know, they still had an experience. And it was lovely talking to people who, you know, could still speak Urdu and had fond memories of their ayah and they really loved India and some people did try and stay on. You know, I think people had differing experiences, you know, depending on where they were in the country. But I think by a year or so after partition, a lot had left. And I think that they observed what was going on around them. But they themselves, even though people wanted the British out, when the the frenzy and the violence of partition happened, they were not the target. So they may have got caught up in the, in, in the trouble if they happened to be walking in the street, but they were not targeted in the same way as, as the kind of Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs were out for each other. But what was interesting is I think that we spoke to one person who was a member of the British Indian Army whose unit had, had been disbanded and he said that officers like himself felt quite helpless at the time and that they felt that partition had been rushed through and that wasn't the right thing, that that he felt some of the bloodshed could have been spared if actually they'd stuck to the original timetable. We've talked a lot about the darker aspects of partition but were there also people within India and Pakistan for whom these days of independence were a time of celebration? It was an enormous time of celebration. And I think that's the difficulty even now, 70 years on, when you remember independence, but you also remember partition. It is a very bittersweet time. And of course, people were delighted. You know, in you, you hear of people in the streets in Delhi watching the fireworks you know, the same in, in, in Pakistan. It was a very joyous time. I think not everybody understood what independence was, especially in the villages. One man said that in an Indian Punjabi village, they thought that um, it meant that Nehru would be king because they'd always lived under a monarch. So it wasn't very clear, but they understood that the British were leaving. And so, yes, it was a wonderful time. But even in the Punjab on Independence Day during, you know, during the 14th and 15th, trouble was happening. Trouble came to Delhi much later. So violence was still around you, especially in the Punjab. And there is a wonderful bit of archive on Independence Day in Delhi where um, the reporter says, you know, and, and the flag has been hoisted, but the monsoon clouds are gathering. And I think that image is very correct. I think that it was a happy day, but uh, what came after, I think, really cast a long shadow over that day. Coming back to these groups of displaced people, after they'd made this 
initial often terrifying journey to either India or Pakistan. What kind of lives did they then lead in their new homes? How easy was it for them to start again? It was very, very difficult. Many found themselves homeless. Many lived in makeshift refugee camps. Some were lucky to then be moved to barracks or other housing. Um, Others went to villages and they took the former homes of the people who had vacated. But, you know, some were entering places with new cultures. Sometimes you had to learn a new language. It was very difficult. And essentially, people were starting from scratch again. And so it's not surprising then that people who went through partition, who left the the place of their birth to either India or Pakistan, they were the ones that chose to come to England after independence. Because if you'd lost your home once, what's the worst that could happen? So um, now that we're 70 years on from the events of partition, how does this all feel to the people who went through it, who you've spoken to within Britain, and also to you know the large number of British Asians living in the country? I think that the people who live through it in Britain... British Asians, honestly, are only talking about it now. And I think there are lots of complicated reasons for that. We talked a little bit about how, because all sides were complicit, it's it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And, you know, even in India and Pakistan, that's the case. And there has been a silence, not only in the diaspora communities, but on the Indian subcontinent, but silence not only amongst the people who lived through it, but by the political establishment. But I think that when you are doubly displaced when you when you come to a new country. So for the diaspora, you're also just... When they came in the 50s and 60s, it was quite hostile for them here. They didn't have time to dwell on difficult pasts. And so they just got on with their lives. And also their children, their grandchildren, their references are very different. And they didn't want to bother them. And so they just didn't really talk about it. And so... Even if they did amongst their family, it wouldn't be the whole story. And it would be very much within the private sphere, not in the public sphere. What I found when I was doing the interviews is that people were telling their story at length. Often for the first time in 70 years, they were saying these stories out loud. And often their children or their grandchildren would be really moved in the corner, listening, sometimes crying. They'd never heard these stories. And I hope it was cathartic for the people who talked about it. But it's very, you know, these are really hard stories to hear. And I think that because partition isn't taught in schools in the way that perhaps, you know, black history is or the Holocaust, a lot of people don't know about that period in history. They don't, they don't know that, uh, you know, even that Britain and the Indian subcontinent have a long standing relationship over many hundreds of years. And so not only do British people not really know that much about partition, but neither do the South Asian community. And if those people in the South Asian community do, it will be from a particular narrative. You know, even the people I know, even people I work with, it's not a very, it's not a wide understanding. And I think that part of it is, it's, it's hard for South Asians to talk about, but maybe it's hard for the political establishment here to talk about its role in empire and how it extracted itself. Do you think that's the reason why partition isn't really taught at schools? Because this is something that affected a large number of people who live in Britain today, or certainly their families, and Britain itself was very much involved in this story. I think I think it is. And I think the way it happened, you know, it's, it, it's complex, but maybe it's something that the British establishment hasn't come to terms with. And... It's a difficult subject to teach because, 
you're dealing with lots of different South Asian groups who now live in Britain and it has to be taught you know, really responsibly. But I think that if you want to understand contemporary Britain and you want to understand why there are so many South Asians living in this country, I think you have to realise that that there is a connection, there is a shared history between South Asia and Britain. And I, I think it's really important for social cohesion. But I also think it's really important for South Asians to kind of understand responsibly what their history is. A partition is, it's a very, very British story. And I think the extraordinary thing about the series is that we never step foot off these shores, that that all these stories are around us. It's just that people don't know about them. And so when we think of partition, we think it's about something far away. And yet it's, it's, it's not. And it's really interesting. One of my producers who I worked with said he now wants to go up to any elderly Indian person and, and ask them what's their story. And the truth is, if you pretty much ask any British Asian person or any South Asian person, tell me about your parents, everybody has a story. And I and I think if, if one good thing comes out of this series is that children, grandchildren will ask their parents about what their story was during that time and allow them to speak about it because these people are old and we have a very small window of opportunity to hear what they have to say. That was Kavita Puri. The first episode of Partition Voices airs today, the 31st of July, at 9am and then again at 9.30pm on BBC Radio 4. And it will also be available on BBC iPlayer Radio. And the testimonies that were recorded for the series are all going to be archived by the British Library for historians of the future. Meanwhile, you can read a piece on the partition of India in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's issue also includes articles on Passchendaele, the history of witchcraft, and the medieval Black Prince, among other things. Look out for it in all good newsagents and in our many digital formats. And don't forget that tickets for our live events at Winchester and York are currently on sale. The weekends take place from the 6th to 8th of October and the 24th to 26th of November respectively, and talks are now beginning to sell out. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets. OK, so that's all for today, but we will be back on Thursday when we'll be joined by William Dalrymple and Anita Anand to talk about one of the world's most famous and controversial jewels, the Koh-i-Noor. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.